Well, listen, it is a a great delight to be here uh, gathered amongst the body of Christ once more. And again, anybody excited to be gathered with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Amen. Despite the rain, despite if you had a bad morning, yet we get together around the body of Christ. It is one of God's great graces on your life is that he does not uh, save you and then have you isolated living somewhere uh, where there is no population of people. But he actually saves you and then puts you into community, into a body of believers. And we are grateful for that. Well, welcome to our first of two gatherings. We have a ton to do and a very, very, very very limited time to do it in. So why don't you guys do me a favor, grab whatever uh, contains the word of God for you. Grab your Bibles, your devices, your iPads, uh, your laptops, whatever it is that contains the word. If you guys could grab that for me, meet me in First Peter. We are back in the book of First Peter. We've been going through it line by line, uh, really kind of treating it as a study uh, through the book of First Peter, but also really trying to pull out the nutrients to apply them to our lives uh, and we are coming towards the end of it. I don't know if you guys have sensed it or we, we feel like we've been in it for 10 years, uh, but we are coming towards the end of the book of First Peter. And if you guys could do me a favor and do not check out, don't check out because between now and the final greetings in chapter five, uh, Peter has a lot, a lot, a lot to say to us. He's still going to continue on this theme of, of Christian suffering. He's also going to start to introduce the idea of elders and um, and, and he's going to introduce the idea, the idea of members in relationship with elders. And so there's a lot. And then even in the final greetings, you know, a lot of times we skip over. There's two things we skip over when we're going through a book of the Bible. We skip over the genealogies and we skip over the final greetings. Uh, but both of them are inspired words of God. And both of them have nutrients in them. So do not check out as we walk through uh, the rest of this book. Do me a favor. Pick me up in verse number seven. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 7. It says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, you should underline this phrase, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of God of good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks with oracles of God and whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think since the the text ends with an amen, it's a good place for us to put a period and spend some time talking about. I want to talk to you guys today, really lifting up uh, the first few words in verse number seven. And I want to talk to you guys today from the from the title. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Let us look to the Lord. Father, we realize our moment by moment and second by second need of you. Uh, That means this very, very, very moment right now. We need you. Our gathering today would be in vain if you were not present. It would just be an information dump, a a historical um, review, at best, if if your Holy Spirit is not here. So would you breathe on all of us this morning? Uh, Father, I pray that you would lift our spirits. Sometimes the rain has a good way of just getting us down. But Father, even though it's raining outside right now, your son is sitting on the throne uh, right next to you. And Father, I pray that he would be glorified in our time today. Might Jesus be proclaimed, might the gospel be clear, and might you encourage the believer, strengthen the believer, 
convict the believer. And the one that doesn't believe, I pray that you would save the non-believer today. It is by your grace and by your mercy that we get to gather today. I pray that we would focus our attention on Jesus today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you look at your neighbor and quickly just say the end of all things is at hand. Look at another neighbor and just simply say it. The end of all things is at hand. A few weeks ago, I flew into uh, the airport, Jack's Airport, uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Pretty familiar with the airport. I've been there a few times, uh, frequently have visited that airport and even had layovers in that airport. And so because I've visited that airport so many times, I'm pretty familiar with the layout of the airport. And as we were flying in and descending into the airport, We were landing the plane, and in my mind, I was already thinking, man, I'm late. My flight was delayed, and so I knew I was late to the thing I needed to be at. And so in my mind, I was already scoping out. I said, man, I know how I'm going to get to the rent-a-car place. I'm going to run right through. I knew exactly how to get there. So the plane uh, landed and finally started to taxi towards the gate, and I'm getting anxious thinking I need to get to the rent-a-car place. And I finally land, we deplane, I get out, and I start running towards the Hertz car place. And it almost felt like the Lord pressed pause on everything when I got to the Hertz rent-a-car place. I get to the Hertz uh, rent-a-car place, and the lady at the counter and I just started to have a deep conversation. Now, this is a week after Hurricane Irma just hit Florida. And so she began to tell me about her week. She began to tell me, and I felt like I didn't want to rush her as she was talking, but I was very intrigued by the things she was saying. She almost, I mean, she made it very clear that she paid no attention to the hurricane. She's like, I don't care what the, what the news forecast is saying. I don't care what government officials are saying. I don't care if they're evacuating the city. I don't care what they're doing. It was very clear to me that this lady was not taking heed to the warnings. She even went so far as she said, I did not evacuate, which I don't think Jacksonville necessarily had to because it wasn't, wasn't as bad as South Florida. But nevertheless, she even said, I didn't even go to the store and stock up on food. She joked around and said, my refrigerator is empty right now. And I began to be puzzled by some of her comments because I was like, man, this lady really is not taking this storm seriously. Unfortunately, I realized that many Christians are like that. Many Christians are like the Hertz lady at the counter. We ignore the warnings. Here's what I know about the Bible. Over and over again, at least 150 chapters in the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelations 22 has warned us about the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. Over and over, at least 150 chapters have warned us. Prophets have warned us. Even Jesus himself Jesus steps on the scene, and the first message he preaches is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. At hand meaning it's nearly, it's near, it's close. That was Jesus' first sermon. Most of the prophets have prophesied about the end times. Nevertheless, we hear about the end times, and for some reason, we ignore it. We treat it like the weatherman talking about a hurricane, and we're like, it's not that serious. It's not really coming. But unfortunately, it is close. Not unfortunately. For those who have trusted in Christ, fortunately, it is close because we'll spend eternity with our king. But for those who do not know Christ, unfortunately, it is at hand. And you need to make a decision. And so what we see in the text, not just through the prophets, not just through 150 chapters talking about the end times, but in our text this morning, Peter is going to push us towards what we would call an eschatological view of the end times. That just means a study of the, of the, of the 
uh, the coming of Christ, the end times when Christ will crack the sky and he'll ride in on a horse on a cloud with a tat on his thigh and he'll have fire in his eyes and have a, a tongue, of a, a sword coming out of his mouth. This is Revelation 21. What you will see in our text today is Peter is going to push this urgency to us again. Pick me back up in verse number seven. It says this, the end of all things is at hand. The urgency that he starts the text with this morning really is being launched off the platform of the preceding verses. We didn't really talk much about it in verses five and six before we even got to seven. Verses five and six, Peter already dealt with the end times. And now he's launching the platform of the end times in verse number seven. He's pushing it again. Now, if you're a thinker on any level, if you're in here and you're like, man, Pastor, I heard you say, that this letter was written between 60 and 65 A.D., Peter surely is lying in the text because it's no way Peter can say over two millennials ago, it's no way Peter can say that the end of all things is at hand, but yet he died and the end of all things was not at hand. In fact, 50 years have passed and this text has not been fulfilled. A century has passed. This text has not been fulfilled. A millennial has passed. This text has not been fulfilled. In fact, you and I are sitting in this room right now, and this text has not been fulfilled. Jesus has not come back. I taught the fourth Wednesday night prayer and Bible study a few weeks ago here at the church, and uh, we, we really talked on Bible study methods. And one of the things we said is, man, you really got to break the Bible up in four different sections. There's creation. There's fall, there's redemption, and there's consummation or restoration. It's, that's, the, that's the whole Bible. Creation, God created all things. Fall, man fell in Genesis chapter 3, and the rest of the text talk about the fall. And then redemption, Jesus Christ steps on the scene, goes to a cross and dies for his people, then thus redeeming us back to God, and then consummation. Here's the reality. You and I in this room are living between redemption and consummation. That's where we're at right now. Christ has already came the first time, just like God promised he would. The Messiah has already came. He died on the cross for the sins of his people. And here we are now waiting for Christ to return. There's two important things that you must pick up that Peter is, he is saying and what he's not saying. Here's what Peter is saying. He's saying that all that God has planned to do on his redemptive to-do list has been completed. Christ has already been sent. He already died on the cross. His believers have now been filled with the Holy Spirit. Those that have trusted in Jesus have been filled with the promised Holy Spirit. Here's what we know. God promised that Jesus the Messiah would come the first time, and he came. So just because we know the consistency of God's promise of him coming the first time, you can bank on the fact that he's coming back again. So he's saying, yes, God's redemptive to-do list, completed. Only thing left to do now is sin Christ. But what he's not saying is he's not giving us a date. He's not giving us a time. I don't know if you guys have picked this up. Many people have predicted the end times. Many people have predicted down to dates. I don't know if you guys remember in 2011, a guy by the name of Harold Camping. You guys remember that? He famously quoted that, um, I think it was May 21st, 2011, that the end, the end of all things is going to happen then. May 21st. Well, May 22nd came around and we all had to go to work and, 
You know, his prophecy just did not come to pass. It's funny, though, because he, he prophesied that, well, fake prophet, he prophesied that in, uh, in May and ended up retiring from radio in October and then ended up dying the next year. And we're still here. So his promise did not come. So Peter is not saying, he's saying the end of all things is at hand. He is not saying this is the date that Christ is coming back. Let me put a little bit of Bible here. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. No one knows the day nor the hour, but the Son of Man will come. But even though Peter himself does not know the date, here's what Peter does know, and here's what Peter is going to push through the rest of the, through the, rest of the passage, but definitely push through the rest of the verse in verse number 7. He's going to say, we do not know the date, but here's what we know. Those that have trusted in him should not sit idle. Those that have trusted in him should not sit back and let this eschatological view of the end times make us lazy. No, he's actually going to push. He's going to push action. The end times never is for us to sit back and fold our arms and do nothing. The end times is a, actually pushes us to do more and to do action and to be salt and light into the world and to be uh, 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 really agents of change, to be ambassadors for Christ. That's what the end times should promote. The end time should not promote for you to let yourself go until Christ comes back. No, the end time says, no, get on mission right now. In fact, he says it. Look at verse number seven. It says this, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, so now that we know everything else he's about to say is in, is in relationship to the end of all things. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, here's what he says. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. It's amazing to me that Peter does not say the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, go outside, isolate yourself from the world, and just look into the sky until Christ comes back. He does not promote being idle here. He does not promote being lazy here. In the text this morning, he says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, get busy. Have sober minds. He says, even talks about prayer in here. He says, be self-controlled. I don't know if you guys remember the movie 2012. In the movie 2012, they knew that the end, the end times were coming. And remember Woody Harrelson in that movie? He picked out a spot on the hill, and he said, I'm going to die right here. I'm going to have a front row seat to the end of all times. And he's watching these asteroids come, and he's just sitting there, and he's watching. Like, that's not what the Christian is supposed to do. The Christian that is on mission for Jesus Christ is not supposed to hear the end times pick a spot and die. We are supposed to pick a location to live, a neighborhood to plug into, a church to submit to, and live on mission for Jesus Christ. He says, be sober-minded, be self-controlled, and he says, for the sake of your prayers. What he's showing us here is that the end times should prompt you to do more. In fact, my wife and I got pregnant. Well, she got pregnant. I didn't get pregnant. I assisted. Y'all get that on the way home. But she got pregnant in, uh, in 2002. She had the, we had the, our first son in 2003. And towards the end of her pregnancy, the last trimester, she started to do something I never heard of. She started going to the room and she started to paint. And I helped her, but she started to put together uh, the crib. You know, we were newlyweds, so we didn't have furniture. She started to order all this furniture. And someone said to me, oh, she's nesting. I've never heard this term before. I was like, what does that mean? She was home, but what was she doing? She knew the expectancy. Our pregnancy, everything that needed to happen, happened. 
She threw up the amount of time she needed to throw up. She, you know, she, she got sick when she needed to get sick. She took her vitamins. She went to the doctor. She got through the first couple of trimesters. And now she's finally in the final trimester. And the arrival of our son did not prompt her to be lazy. The arrival of our son prompted her to get busy. That is what Peter is saying to us today. He's saying, prepare for this reality that Christ is coming back. How do you prepare in the text? Be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. The message of the end times, don't don't let it push you to be lazy. You should not be that guy on the corner with the long beard, just let his hair grow out because the end times, he has a sign coming saying Jesus is coming back. No, get busy for the Lord. That's what the text is telling us today. In fact, he gives us two verbs here. He says self-controlled in verse number seven and sober-minded. Essentially, these are the same things. He's basically saying Do not let the end times allow you to get spiritually drunk. That's what he's showing us today. He's saying, enjoy life, but don't enjoy it at the expense of forgetting what the perspective is, what the focus is. He's not saying isolate yourself. He's saying, no, enjoy life, but don't let it be the focus of who you are. If I knew I had to preach this morning, I said, man, you know what? This is a good morning. For me to pull out the 1800, the Ciroc, and the Woodford Reserve whiskey and, you know, have uh, some drinks with my eggs this morning. Like, you guys would have looked at me like I was crazy. The expectancy that I was going to stand before God's people helped me to make decisions today. So the expectancy that Jesus Christ is coming back should help you to be disciplined, should help you to be sober-minded, to help you to be self-controlled. And at the end of the summer, my family and I, my wife and I celebrated 15 years, and so we did so in Barcelona. And when we got to Barcelona, it was a nice city, and there was one section of Barcelona that was known as the shopping area. So we went to the shopping area. I do not like shopping all day. And so we went to this area, and literally all day from morning until the evening, we walked from store to store after store after store after store. And if you ask me what I bought, I would have to frustratingly tell you, not very much at all. And the reason we didn't buy very much, what helped us make disciplined decisions of what not to buy, it wasn't that the merchandise wasn't nice. It wasn't that the the sales weren't nice. What helped us to make decisions on not to load up was because we knew Barcelona wasn't our home. We knew there was a plane awaiting us. We knew that we were going to, we knew that we were already overweight on our luggage going there. Y'all know how y'all do. Y'all take an extra bag so y'all can buy stuff and put it in the bag. We didn't do that. And so we knew we were already overweight. What helped us to make decisions not to load up was because we knew that wasn't our final resting place. We knew we weren't home. Unfortunately, Christians load up here on earth. Philippians chapter 3, verse number 20, what does it say? Our citizenship is in heaven. And Peter is saying to us this morning, be disciplined. Be sober-minded. Be self-controlled. Don't let the idea that the end times is coming allow you to load up while here on earth. This is not your home. It doesn't make sense for me to load up. It doesn't make sense for me to load up a shopping cart at a place that I don't live. So the text is telling us this morning, listen, be sober-minded. And both of these, self-controlled and sober-minded, notice this, are connected to prayer. Did you see the text? At the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The energy that you would have doing other things, Peter is saying, expend that energy on prayer. And prayer really is dependency on God. That's all prayer is. 
Prayer is showing that you are dependent on God to move. Until Christ comes back, we should be dependent on God. The best way to show your dependency is through prayer. People who are not dependent on God don't pray. If you think that you can make the decisions on your own, you won't pray. But those of us who, who know that without Christ, we can do nothing, we get on our knees. We get before the Lord. And so he says, listen, these two verbs are connected by this one reality. What's that reality? It is prayer. Use your, your sensible and alert thinking should be used for prayer. Let's get back in the text. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Verse number eight, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. This idea of love is not new to us in, in the book of First Peter. In fact, it, it dawned on me yesterday, last night, before I was going to bed, I just quickly read through the, the entire uh, four cha- fourth chapter of First Peter, just one last time, just read through the whole thing, and I quickly realized that Peter actually addressed this idea of loving one another in every single chapter in this book. I didn't realize it when, when I first read it, but after rereading it last night, I said, you know what? Every single chapter, Peter has addressed this idea of love. Put Bible there in chapter 1, verse 22, he says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, by a sincere, here it is, brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You jump over to chapter 2, verse 17, he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Chapter 3, verse 8, finally, all of you having unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. Here we are in chapter 4, verse number 8, and he says what? Keep loving one another earnestly. You get to chapter five in the very last verse. He ends the book talking about love. Chapter five, verse number 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peter has addressed this idea of love in every single chapter. But in our text this morning, he addresses it slightly different than he addressed it in any other place. Every one of them I read did not address love in the context of sin. In our text this morning, look at what he says in verse number eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love, watch this, covers a multitude of sin. Now this morning, he talks to us about love, but he does so in the context of sin. It's important to know that Peter is writing this letter to Christians. He is writing this letter to believers, the church, the the universal church, the body of Christ. Here's what he's really saying. Just because you're saved, just because you trusted Jesus, does not mean you do not fall into sin. And when you fall into sin, what you need is a brother or a sister to love you. The Bible says, he doesn't even define the sin. It says a multitude of sins. So any sin you can think of can be categorized under this idea of a multitude of sins. And so Peter says, when sin arises in your brother, in your sister, context of believers, when it arises, What overcomes that is love. The problem is we don't want to love people through their sin. We want to put them on blast. And it's crazy because we do so in the context of a prayer request. We'll say, girl, you better pray for so-and-so because she out there. And then we tell all her business as though it's a prayer request. In reality, we know it's not a prayer request. Really, we just want to gossip. But the Bible doesn't say gossip this morning about the sin. It says cover the sin. Please understand that cover does not mean hide. Cover does not mean sweep it under the rug. 
Cover means I'm going to address it in a context that if that person repents, nobody else needs to know. This is Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17. And Matthew chapter 18 is the, it's where we get the idea of church discipline. It's a progression. But verse 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go to him. And then it goes so far as to say, go to him alone. So here's the context. You go to your brother alone, you share the sin with him, and if he repents, the Bible says you've gained a brother. But if he does not repent, that is where the progression starts. Then take one or two with you, that every, uh, every word or every deed may be established. If he doesn't repent then, then tell it to the church. If he, doesn't, if he still doesn't repent, the Bible says treat him as an unbeliever. Notice the, what pro, the problem with us is we run past verse 15, and when someone sins against us, we automatically run to the church, or we automatically run to other people. What we're doing is we're putting their sin on blast. We're not covering them. Who have you covered in sin? Who have you worked through in sin in a way that was loving to them? Here's what the Bible says. Love covers a multitude of sin. Love covers a multitude of sin. Love covers a multitude of sin. This idea of covering a multitude of sin can best be seen in a story in the Old Testament. I told the church at that, four, that same fourth Wednesday night Bible study, I told the church to read Genesis chapter 9. This is the story when Noah falls into sin. Noah gets off the boat after spending uh, over a month and a half with his family. By the way, if you spend a month and a half with your family in one context, you might need a little sippy sippy too. Just, I just want to put that out there. So Noah gets off the boat. What does he do? He plants a vineyard. What does he do after that? He drinks from the grapes, from the fruit of the vineyard, and gets drunk. But even in that context, if you'll allow me a couple minutes to just quickly read it, I I told the church, I said, man, y'all need to read it. It can be confusing, and no one really, really knows what's going on. Nevertheless, it is a powerful, powerful, powerful passage. Look at what it says in verse number 20. Uh, This is Genesis chapter 9. If you're taking notes, go home and read it. Genesis chapter 9, verse 20 to 27. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank from the wine and became drunk. Here's the sin. He became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his nakedness, uh, saw the nakedness of his father, and went outside and told his two brothers. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, walked in backwards, here it is, and covered the nakedness of their father. The faces turned back, their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, which is Ham's son. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of he should be a servant of servant to his brothers. He also It says, he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth's territory. Notice what's happening in the text. In the text, the one that did not cover the sin is the one that got cursed, which is crazy because you would think Noah would curse himself. He sinned too. But it's almost as though Noah is saying the sin of gossip is big. It's huge. Going so far that even the sin of of getting drunk didn't even get cursed in the text. What got cursed? That he went outside and told. The problem in our churches, in the churches, is we have too many hams in the church. Too many people that do not cover their brother and their sister in sin. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sin. We need more shims. We need more j-paths. More that cover, not hide. 
Do not hide someone's sin because you're not helping them when you hide their sin. You're not helping them when you're covering it in a way that they can go out and do it again. But it's important to know that in the text this morning, he does say love covers sin. He, it covers it. So I don't know how you do it in this. I don't know how you do it. I don't know who you've ever blasted about their sin. And, or who you, and most people that blast other people about their sin really don't have a right understanding of your own sin. You don't like when you know that you got your own junk going on in your own life, you have no business to put others on blast. If anything, you'll put yourself on blast. Text tells us this morning that love covers a multitude of sin. And this idea of love is going to continue on in the text. Please pick me back up in verse number eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. Here it is. Love again. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is interesting. I told you Peter is writing this letter in a, in, a, in a language called Greek. And as he's writing this letter, this hospitality word is an interesting word. This word hospitality literally means to friend a stranger. That's what it means. Hospitality doesn't necessarily mean let me set up coffee. and No, it means friend a stranger. So, I mean, this idea of hospitality is so important that the, one of the main qualifications for an elder, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, is hospitality. Friend the stranger. Here's Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, and thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Hospitality doesn't mean I'm only going to invite people that I like to my house. It means the one that I may not like, I'm going to push to get in relationship with that person. I'm going to push to reconcile with that person. Or those that may not know Jesus, I want to get in relationship with them. I want to friend a stranger. Can I go deeper on this idea of of friending a stranger. Anybody in this room that has trusted in Jesus, you have trusted in Jesus, listen to me, because you friended a stranger named Jesus. Jesus wasn't your boy. Jesus wasn't your friend. Jesus wasn't your boo. You were an enemy of Jesus. And you, and you friended Jesus. Why? Because of hospitality. You Hospitality, you friended a stranger. Let me put Bible, definitely put Bible there. Matthew chapter 25, verse 35 says this. This is what Jesus says. These words are in red. It says, for when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. Here it is. When I was a stranger, you invited me into your home. And even this idea of inviting a stranger named Jesus into the home of your heart, it's crazy because Jesus has authority that he could have kicked down the door, but he doesn't. When you go to Revelation chapter three, it says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And those who hear my voice will answer the door, and I'll come in, and I'll dine with him. I'll eat with him. You fooled around with a stranger named Jesus and got saved. Friend of stranger. Hospitality. This idea of hospitality in the church is huge. This is how the first church started. The early church started by friending strangers, by allowing people that were hostile to the gospel into the context of community so that they could learn what the gospel is this is extremely important and some of you only hang around with your people you only hang around with your clique and that's why church becomes so clickish and it comes so clickish because we only hang around with our people here's what scripture says until jesus returns friend the stranger that's what he's pushing us again in the context of love back to verse number nine show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Here, here's what Peter is saying. When you got saved, I gave you Jesus. 
But I didn't only give you Jesus, I also gave you a gift, a spiritual gift. Every single person in this room has a gift. And until Christ comes back, do you notice what Peter says? He doesn't say, just use your gifts for the world. He says, use your gifts to serve one another. The body of Christ. I'm not hating on your gift. Like if you're using it in the secular world, listen, use it. Many of you have, are some gifted people. You're in, you're in different spheres outside of the church that you can, you know, have relationship with non-believers because of your gifting. Amen. But if you're not serving the church, the body of Christ, like what are we doing? How are we taking our gifts and the world is getting the best of us, but the church doesn't get the best of us? If the question you're asking when you're coming to church is, what does the church have for me? What does the church have for me? What does the church have for me? How about you ask, how can I use my gift to serve the church? How can I use my gift to enhance the body of Christ? You're slowing the body of Christ down because you're not using your gift in the context of church. And what we are when we say, can I, what does the church have? Can I have? What we're, it's really spiritually childish. Only children say, can I have? Can I have? Can I have? Spiritual adults contribute. Here's what Peter is saying in our context this morning. He's saying, listen, until Christ comes back, serve each other with your gift. Do you know how much work we can do in this community if everybody brought their giftings together? Not just in this local church here, but if every church in this community use their gifts to the best of their ability to serve the body. Do you know how much we can, do you know how many lost people are in this context? You walk out right now, do you know how many people don't know Jesus? And whatever capacity, whatever, there's not one person in here that does not have a spiritual gift. Some of you can teach, some of you can preach, some of you are, can sing, some of you are, are, are good with, with numbers and, you know, you're good with design and all of these spiritual, I mean, all of these gifts that you have and spiritual gifts that you have, you don't bring them to the body. It's a problem. Peter says, this is what you do. As you are waiting for Christ to return, bring that gift to serve one another. And some of you are extremely gifted. Let's keep going here. We're going to try to land the plane here in verse Let me read verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of uh, as good stewards of God's very grace. Verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Look at this. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Please pick this up to him. Be glory and dominion forever and ever. Peter concludes our time this morning by busting out in a doxology, which is crazy because in my mind, I would think that the doxology would come at the conclusion of the of the book. He's like he's in the middle of chapter four, not even at the end of chapter four. He's at the middle of chapter four and he busts out in a doxology. Doxology is different than and should not be uh, confused with a benediction. Many of you have heard of a benediction. A benediction is different. A benediction pronounces a blessing over the assembled congregation. It pronounces a blessing over you. But a doxology ascribes praise to God. It's a difference in the two. In fact, if you want to know more about that, listen to the sermon at the beginning of the year on, I think it was called 2016 Doxology. There's a difference between a benediction pronouncing a blessing over you and a doxology which ascribes praise to God. Let me give you an example of this. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, 
24 through 26, gives us a benediction. It pronounces a blessing over the body. Look at what it says. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Listen how many times this personal pronoun is used. And be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. That's called a benediction. Here's a doxology. Doxology is found in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 to 21. Watch, watch how the pronoun changes. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably, then all that we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. I intentionally end our time. If you've been here for any amount of time, one of the things you'll pick up is that I end our time every single week by doing a doxology out of the book of Jude. A doxo- I mean, that's the final word in our, in our service is a doxology. Why? Because I want our last words to ascribe praise to God. Yeah, pronounce a blessing over you. That's biblical. But I want Jesus to be glorified from start to finish of every service. Now, I told you guys before that, you know, in the third grade, we learned this idea that a pronoun must find its fulfillment in a noun, right? It must go back to the nearest antecedent. The question you should be asking when you read the end of this chapter is, God the Father is mentioned and Jesus Christ is mentioned, the Son. Who is this doxology ascribing praise to? Please notice it. It says, in order that in everything God may be glorified, God the Father may be glorified through Jesus Christ, the Son, to him be glory and dominion forever. The nearest, the, the, the pronoun him has to find its fulfillment in a noun. What is a noun? A person, a place, or a thing. Who is the closest person mentioned to him? Jesus Christ. Why am I saying that? Because here's how we'll sum our time up this morning. We'll sum it up thinking, thinking of it like this. Before Christ comes back, until Christ comes back, as we are waiting, yes, we're sober-minded. Yes, we're prayerful. Yes, we're self-controlled. Yes, we exemplify discipline. But the greatest priority until Christ comes back is ascribing praise to Jesus. Giving praise and glory. The reason you got up this morning and weathered through the storm, weathered through the, the rain, jumped in the shower, made coffee, got the kids ready, came here. You did not come here to see your brother and sister. You came here to give a doxology, doxology to Jesus. You came here to praise Jesus. I, I told the worship team at the last, I want to invite the worship team to come on up now. I told the worship team at, our last, at, at the last minute, they had another song picked out to do right before communion. And I said, man, what a beautiful way to end our time by doing a doxology, by singing a doxology. I grew up in North Carolina, and one of the things that our church always did, I went to a church called First Baptist in Jacksonville. One of the things our church always did was we always ended our time by singing a doxology. And I didn't know what, I didn't know the, the significance of that when I was a kid. But here's the significance. We are giving Christ praise at the end of our time. And so as the worship team comes and sings before communion, I just want you guys, if you know the song, just sing along. Let's ascribe praise to him. Peter does it smack dead in the middle of a chapter. We can do it in the middle of our service. Let us ascribe praise to Jesus. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. 
all things really is at hand and the reality is Lord you could come back before we even finish this prayer Father let the reality of that sit on us I think one of the biggest problems we have is that we read texts like this and we don't take it serious there is no urgency we're like that woman at the hurts counter that just doesn't feel like it's that serious it's that big of a deal but let the reality of your second coming birth praise for your son, Jesus Christ. May it birth love for our brothers and our sister. May it birth self-discipline and self-control and sober-mindedness within us. Father, we are in desperate need of you. We're in need of you because naturally this urgency isn't in us. I think because Every day a tomorrow hits. Every day we wake up and there's another day. And we just assume that we get another day. But Father, may we be like those, those five wise virgins that said, I don't have enough oil for me and for you because I got to get to heaven. I got to go. My bride and groom is coming. And may, we, may we sit in great anticipation of the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.